You're listening to the Zoe Turner Podcast, business and mindset conversations that will help you move from fear and uncertainty to development and growth so that you can crush both life and business. Please welcome your host, Zoe Turner. Exciting guest for you all today. I'm particularly interested in speaking to him because he's not only involved in the art of communication, which is a subject that absolutely fascinates me, but he also grew up in Redcar, which is a very small town, very close to where I grew up. I grew up in Saltburn in the northeast of England, so we've had very, very similar backgrounds. He's led a very exciting career, and he now trains individuals globally to be the best speakers they can be. Very well known in the region as one of the go-to experts in his field. So I'm very pleased to have him on the podcast today. Let's welcome Dave Crane to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I've never had such a good introduction in my life. <laughs> Don't know where you got that stuff from. I made it up. Well, I know you're a very busy man, so I really appreciate your time. Firstly, Dave, for the listeners listening to this at home or watching it at home or listening to it on the podcast, can you... Give us a little bit of your backstory. I'm really interested. Like we've had quite similar backgrounds. Yeah. You're from Redcar. Yeah. I'm from Saltburn. I know what it was like in terms of opportunity growing up in the Northeast. It's taken me quite some time to like find my way. You seem to have had a very successful career right from the start. So I'm interested to know a little bit about your background and what has driven you to get to where you are today. Well, I think. If you're asking the question, what drove you to get to where you are, you just have to go to Redcar. <laughs> and the answers are written all over it. Now, Redcar and Saltburn, about how many miles away? Eight miles or something daft like that? Yeah, maybe about five. About five miles. So we're almost neighbours. It's like walking distance, which is bizarre. But we're now the other side of the world and having a chat like this, which is fantastic. So um, background is, uh, when I, I didn't grow up in Redcar, I got there, I, li- I lived in Scotland, I was born in, in Stockton in the northeast. we moved to Scotland. I was born in Stockton. No. Wow. I guess most people... He's stalking me, we've been doing it for many, <laughs> many years now, from a baby being stalking me. I guess most people are who grew up in the northeast. Well, yeah, it's probably the nearest hospital for miles, that's why we probably went to Stockton. Um, oh goodness. So anyway, uh, I was born in Leeds, bizarrely enough, and we lived in Stockton, and then we moved to you Scotland. Were born in I was born in Leeds. Yeah, I you were born in Stockton. I made it up. I lie a lot. No, I, um, I was born in Leeds. It was a long time ago. Give me a break. <laughs> I, I don't remember none of it. I can't remember where you were born. No, I wasn't there. Well, I was there, but I wasn't there. I was like, maybe. So then we moved to Scotland, where um, I lived from about the age of three to about thirteen. I had a really hard time in Scotland. I've got to be honest. Um, not just being a black kid, but being an English kid. An English and black kid was just not great. So we moved down. And it's nothing against Scot- Scottish people. It was a different time. It was like in the 70s and so on. So um, even though you probably still don't like English people. Um, so then we moved back to the northeast of England. And I found for my education in Scotland, I was about half a year ahead of everybody else because of the, the difference in the, the actual scholars year and so it allowed me to get on with everybody while treading water as far as my education went so I could get on in the school and I was and I was a little bit older um, than most of the people in my year so I had a massive impact I was able to get really good position in the social structure even though I was the only black kid in probably the north of England at the time certainly felt like that 
One of the things that was so fascinating is years later, when I worked for the BBC, I went along to, to do an interview with Alison Moyet, who was uh, at the Red Car Bowl um, when I was working for the BBC Red, Cleveland. Red Cabal. You remember Red Cabal? <laughs> with the swimming pools next to it. Um, and so I was chatting away to a guy who I knew was a big brother of one of the girls in my class, Roger Middlecote. Karen was in my class at school. And he said, when you first arrived, we decided that we really liked you. And so the rugby team said that they would protect you and make sure that nobody could bully you, nobody could pick on you. And that's what we did. We were unsung heroes. And I didn't realize this until I was maybe 21. And it fitted in. It made perfect sense because I had the most easy ride of getting on with people because it just felt different. Every day in Scotland, I was fighting. And in England, I don't think I had a single fight at all. I mean, I realized later on I had these guardian angels that just decided we'll make sure this guy's all right. So that was really beautiful. I went away to university. I worked as a DJ for another year. It's going to ask a question. Just, yeah, just going back. So what, was, what were your influences like when you were in Red Car? Growing up when I left school, didn't really have many positive influences. Well, people that would encourage me to want to kind of do something different do something out the, outside the box. And I still think now that people kind of think I'm a bit bit weird. Yeah, um, but weird is good. I, I love being weird. I love being really difficult to categorize because if you can stand out and make it work, people will respect you because they don't know how to deal with you. And if you're doing stuff at a really high level, then you, then you become different and they want to work with you. My background, I mean, growing up in Red Car, I had the most amazing time. Everyone was really encouraging. I would have gone through the same stuff that everybody would go through. Um, but I think that coming from the Northeast, and this is why we've hit it off in the half an hour or so that we met each other. When you grow up in a place that's got nothing, apart from, you know, maybe mining towns, or in our case, it was, it was a, a town that had a steelworks. People have no airs and graces, and they get on with each other, and they have to. So if you're in a bus stop, you say hello to whoever's there, and you start a conversation going, because it would be rude not to talk to them. When you go anywhere else in the world, there's silence, and it's almost intrusive when you start inquiring about anything. And so I've found that when I bump into northerners anywhere in the world, you just get on, because that's what we do. And so I learned a lot. I got a lot of opportunities. I was reasonably good at sports. Um, I ended up working for BBC Cleveland as a as a news reporter and TV and uh, not TV radio presenter, um, but it was kind of frustrating at the same time. I didn't get the breaks I wanted, and anyone can turn around and say, "Yeah, well, maybe you weren't good enough." But I I I found myself having a really hard time getting um, freelance shifts after three years at BBC Cleveland. Then I came to Dubai, and within two years, I was running a radio station. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because somebody doesn't recognize or give you opportunity to be as good as you can be. And within those two years, um, before I came to Dubai, I actually went on a TV show called Blind Date, and I won it. Did you? Uh, did you know that? You've not researched that bit. <laughs> I won Blind Date, yeah. Wow. Christmas show. It's on oh YouTube. Oh, my God. And I'm actually thinking, do I recognize you from there? I had a red suit no, on at the time. It was really weird. I'll tell you what was weirdest about it. I mean, the show is a whole new story we can talk about. And I, I mean, that was one of the first ever reality TV shows that most people have no idea. I auditioned for Blind Date. Yeah, yeah well, they... I didn't get a look. You know exactly what it's like then. I mean, it was, it was the go-to show to be discovered by TV. And it was such powerful folklore for a Saturday night going out on a beer... It was a huge part of our Saturday night it was. growing up. 
You had and gladiators he, while you ate your tea, your dinner. The time it was on about 7.30 on ITV or something. Am I right? Are we watching Blind Date? So, so it's probably <laughs> late, earlier than that. It was probably about 7 Maybe o'clock or 6.30. 7. Because around about 7.30, you'd go out for the bus mm. to head into town to get your first drink. <laughs> so you had gladiators while you're eating your dinner. Yeah. Um, or your tea, as we would call it back home. And then you'd have a bl- Blind Date straight on afterwards, which is reality TV, dating game which you'd laugh your head off at. And then you'd jump in the shower and then you'd get ready and you'd go out. And that was everybody's culture in the country. So you'd all chat, chat about it. So it was a very important part. I mean, right now, if you talk about I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is probably the default reality TV show, um, Blind Date was that. In fact, when I, in fact, it's probably bigger Blind Date because when I was on it and I won, I actually won the Christmas show, which is really bizarre. There's 14 million people watching me win on Christmas Day. And then I left the country to come and live out here um, because I applied. For, it was the way to get onto TV shows by being seen on Blind Date. So I sent off cassettes, big chunky video cassettes, and I got an audition for The Clothes Show, for The Big Breakfast, for um, Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, and some other MTV. And they all said we we're interested in it. Then they all came back with, what else have you done? Well, I can't do anything else. You, that was my big break. And so three months later, I got Dear John letters from everybody. And I realized the problem was I should have lived in London. If I lived in London, I could have walked into their office and said, this is me, let's talk. And I could have persuaded people. By the time I realized that, the golden opportunity had moved on. And so I started looking at moving down. Small to window, isn't it? When you, you, yeah. you're involved in a reality, you either take those opportunities, but you moved to Dubai quite quickly after, yeah. Not, you'd stayed not in long. the UK, maybe, yeah. You no, I don't had, think so. I think... I think, sorry to interrupt, sorry. It's okay, I might not be listening properly. If I stayed I in the UK, I felt that I'd missed my window. Yeah. And it was not going to come back because then you have to look for another thing. And then you become that sad person who do anything to get an opportunity. I didn't want to be that. So I moved down, to, I looked to move down to London and I just didn't like it. It wasn't friendly enough and it was just, it was more expensive, it was cold and people didn't talk to each other. So I was ready to leave. So when I finally decided to leave, a job came up in Dubai. I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to go. But when I got here, and this is what's really strange, everybody knew me from Blind Date because there's no decent TV here. There's still not. And what they did was they'd get that cassette of TV in the UK and send it out to their families in Dubai. So everyone saw the first episode because they got all the TV shows. So everywhere I went, Brits were saying, I just saw you. You're the Blind Date guy. <laughs> Which is amazing as a way of getting into the community. And then DJing, it really helped to launch me as a DJ in town. So it worked out really well for me in the end. I mean, I came out here. I worked on radio for a couple of years. I worked for BBC back on radio in the UK. So I got on radio here. um, A startup station called uh, Channel 4 FM, 104.8 in Ajman. And in those days, being on the radio was we were the superstars. We were the only celebrities, apart from obviously your royal family in town. Because um, people didn't know anybody else. And the only way to communicate was radio. We didn't even, even have mobile phones in those days, 25 years ago. So we had the most amazing time working with the star. I mean, I, I worked with James Brown. I worked with the Supremes. I worked with Enrique Iglesias. I worked with Spice Girls. Because they were, they were coming into town. And at the time, I was seen as like one of the top radio DJs. So I was given the, the gigs. Plus also, on stage, I could do it better than most people. So I'd be the guy introducing them on stage, which is fantastic. I mean, eventually I just got sick of doing radio. I got I grew out of it. I came over here at 27. So 
I was at the peak of my DJing years because I knew enough not to be sidetracked. I could focus, I could do really well. But my own career pro projector, projection and trajectory meant that I was actually dumbing it down to just go on the radio every day and talk about, you know, the latest sale of this and would you like to buy that? And I just walked. I went from 90, I went from 104.8 to uh, 92, Dubai 92. Then I went to uh, Radio 2, which was 99.3. And that was about a 10 year span of radio. Um, and I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. And I walked, people were saying, you're crazy. How can you walk away from a job like that where everybody knows you? But it was empty. It meant nothing to me anymore. I hated the politics of the stations, not broadcasting, I love broadcasting, but when you gotta go into work and people are crying in your show, and at the time I'd become a life coach as well, so I was very sensitive, they, they were aware that I could help. I just thought, why am I in here? The bosses are idiots, and everybody's broken, I'm off, so I just stopped, I just canceled working, I refused to go in anymore, and that was my career in radio gone. Media's taken such a transition, I mean, that's what's so good about podcasting, Oh. is that you can literally just talk about anything. Anything. thought you would have had your own podcast. I hadn't got a podcast purely because, um, one, I was advised not to by a friend of mine. She said, no, be interviewed by people is much better. So that's what I've kind of thought of. And also, I may do, if I do the podcasting route, it would be to do a live show from a cafe. It would be to do, uh, do you remember TGI Friday with Chris Evans? I'll do something like that. So it'll be live on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. I'll have a studio audience. I'll have guests coming in. We'll do crazy stuff. Um, or I'll be serious or whatever it is. And it'll be once a week. Get it relatively well produced. That's on my radar. That interests me. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a need for that as well. There is. There is. Because yeah. everybody's, everybody's doing, there's no disrespect. Everyone's doing, like, for instance, when they do videos, hi, Guess where I am? I'm having a really good time. And did you know that if you decide to be nicer to people, they'll be nicer to you? And that's what I've discovered. And that's what you should say. If you agree with me, then put your comments below this video. And I'd love to hear what you think. No, you're right. There and needs that's to, it. There needs to be a different mix. I've thought about, you know, I initially, when I set up this podcast, that's what I was going to do. I was going to go live. And yeah, you're a hot chick. You can do it. Do TV. Do, do it. Yeah, do it's it. still something I'd like to do, and and I think it's just it's very safe when you do a podcast. When you've done so many, it's just very safe. But actually, kind of going live, broadcasting, you know, to the different networks, it's more of a challenge, which is good. And I like to challenge myself. Well, my background is BBC, so it's talk radio was my beginnings. You know, BBC Cleveland was 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 like somewhere where people would go to die while listening. But it was all speech. So I got used to being a journalist, got used to talking. And it was a really good way to start off because when I went to work with commercial radio, um, I could handle live events as easily as I could handle doing a show, which is fantastic. I was looking on your website and one of your slogans is speak your way to success. Right. I, d I don't know where you got that from, but yeah. <laughs> it's probably it's just the sales pitch. It's on something that I was sent. Yeah. How, how important is this skill for elevating yourself in business and selling your brand? I think if you can't speak, you are swimming with your arms tied behind your back. I think that the world of studying really hard and keeping it to yourself is now disappearing because you can get algorithms, you can get apps, you can get artificial intelligence that can do your job better. 
So typically the, the classic jobs of being a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant where you study really hard and you've got the right to basically be a bit aloof. Big data means that anybody can access what you've studied without any knowledge. They can, I mean, the apps don't really exist yet, but you'll be able to go in and see a doctor um, and, and he'll sit there and he'll sell you some drugs because that's what the doctor system is. Two minutes of listening to you go, ow, my elbow hurts, and he'll sell you some Tic Tacs that don't actually fix your elbow, but if you take them frequently enough for, for a week, you'll feel better. And that's what many doctors do. It's part of the system. Not saying all doctors do, but many do. But with an app like RoboDoc, when it arrives, you'll be able to go, right, I've hurt my elbow, and it will give you your, it will cross-reference your existing history, your blood type, your, your stuff that goes on with what the symptoms are like to be and what the best diagnosis is. And if you press the, the, the green button, it will alert a hospital um, nearest to you with the best cost-effective policy for you that you're coming in and make an appointment for you. So that changes the whole game. So what that leaves is a huge area of a quite a small bit which is your communication skills, your ability to get on with people and understand people, to, be, um, to use emotional intelligence, to be able to persuade and influence um, and lead a tribe. Those areas um, leaders should have, but many don't. But if you don't have it nowadays, you're really, really going to find it difficult because you can't rely on your job as the only reason why you become important. So... I think that what we have now is a much bigger growth towards communication skills of all types, and public speaking is very important. But it's not just public speaking. If you're, if you're, your ability to podcast is public speaking, your ability to do one of these crappy videos on, on LinkedIn or, or whatever and upload it to YouTube is still public speaking. Your ability to find inside you a voice with a message and, a, and something that you burn to share with people and then you think about who your audience is, and then you craft the message so you can reach it in a way that elevates or makes their life better. That's the core of public speaking, but it's got so many formats you can use it on. So I think that if you're an entrepreneur and you're starting your own business, public speaking will raise you above the game because 99% of people have a massive fear of public speaking. Um, and so with that, I really think there's a massive opportunity for anybody to be a great speaker and find prominence when people who are better qualified for the same role who can't speak will be ignored. And I think you just have to look at what's happening um, across the board in politics. Uh, and I won't say whether I'm a fan or not, but if you go Donald Trump in the US or, or Boris Johnson in the UK, you don't have to be a career politician. You just have to have a big mouth and a knowledge of social media and a knowledge of what people are thinking to be able to manipulate politics and we've never had that before so it's a really exciting and challenging time because even the status quo of having um the organizations that have been there for many hundreds of years with, with rules and politics and this is the way it should be done if you're a great communicator and you understand what makes people tick you can just say that's rubbish we're not doing it that way and you get people going oh okay and like with the law you know um possession is 90 percent of ownership if you've got it, they've got to take it off you. So if you're making the conversations, it's fascinating. One thing that's true, and this is what's scary, and this is probably why, I mean, I avoid talking about politics, but in this case, um, the rise of the right wing is in many cases because the only things that go viral on social media are things that are funny or things that make you angry. 
things that are interesting or make you depressed or make you sad or make you think don't go viral. People don't react to them. But things that make you angry, you will, you will get angry with. And so what you've got is if you can start a conversation that makes people go crazy, it just gets eyeballs. And social media is driven by views, by likes, by comments, and by, by dropping a stone. And then you have the effect of all the way around, people get the ripples. And so if you start some argument, and it could be a crazy theory the right way, you can see it on CNN a day, two days later as a real thing. So we're in a massive world of currency being about the, the tech you understand, the ability, and the ability to manipulate, persuade, and influence human beings, which I think we've never had before. Even money doesn't cover all that anymore. Bit of a long answer, sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay, thanks Dave. Uh, I think I shared with you uh, before we started the podcast that the reason I'd started this podcast was to provide a platform for my book. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a few questions as we go on now yep. that are kind of related to about the your topics book. in my book. Is that right. okay? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'd like Page to seven. pick your brain. So let's start with gratitude. Right. I want to start with a really nice one. Now, I have been following your stories, and I know this is something that you express a lot. Neuroscientists believe that expressing gratitude on a morning, it affects our brain on a psychological level. I know it's quite important to you. You seem to be grateful for a lot in your life. Is this conscious? And what impact does gratitude have on your brain? Yeah, it's conscious. I'll tell you why. I mean, I'm not a big believer in the secret or any of that stuff. I think it's a bit like hugging a tree. But I do believe in the thing called a reticular activatory system, which makes me sound like a, a, another tree hugger. But that means <laughs> if something's on your radar and you can visualize it, then it becomes part of your consciousness. And your brain is a supercomputer, so it looks for more examples of things that you're interested in. So if you're a manic depressive and you complain about life and you're very negative, your brain will go, right, the boss is interested in negative stuff. Let's find more negative stuff to show him and so you'll see how the world is rubbish and crappy and unfair but if you say okay the world's fantastic i'm just having a bit of a hard time but i'm sure it'll get better it'll go right world's fantastic and you program it like a radar to send out brain waves to connect you with with things that will show up on your radar to to, to reinforce what you're interested in so if you're using gratitude and you're happy and you're positive and you can reframe, that's the key to me, not the, not the gratitude, it's a reframing. The ability to have a positive mental attitude means that you will then notice things that reinforce it. And I've done a lot of work in, in my time to allow myself to be doing a job that I love. I have an most amazing family. I live in a nice house, I've got two big dogs, I drive a nice big car, I live in the most incredible city in the world, I've got wonderful friends, I've got some horrible friends, but I don't, just, I don't talk to them anymore, and I don't, I boot out negative friends like that, I do, with instant, I don't waste any, any time, um, and so I don't live in a la-la land, I live in a world that I've created myself, but I love it, I love everything that's in it, and if it's something I don't like, if I can't fix it or change it, I bin it, so with that, I am very grateful because I've had the opportunity to do it. But when people look at me, and I don't know if they do look at me, but they say, oh, wow, yeah, you're doing all right. Well, none of it's by accidents. You know, you know where I'm from. You know where we're from. If I, if I stayed at our old hometown, half of it was closed. 
You know, to get out, you have to, to become an expat, you leave everybody you love behind. Everybody you've ever known. You are on your own when you get off a plane and nobody's there to help you at all. And so you've got to have, you've got to be prepared to, to walk through that door and never come back again. And if you are prepared to do that, then why not walk faster? Why not do stuff while you're there? I just can't get a blind date out of my mind. In fact, I think I can picture you, know I'm married. you in that red suit. All right, yeah. <laughs> let's not talk about it. It's there. At some I'm point... Sure I've seen you on blind date in the past. You know I didn't know that. Do you know what's so bonkers? I think it's 25 years since I was on in about a week's time. And the girl that I went away to Lapland with, who was a, 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 an Iranian Brit chick, she was a belly dancer, gorgeous, but not my... She did, well, she didn't like me. I would have... With anybody. But... Um, she contacted me about six months ago, about nine months ago, and she 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 must have found me on Facebook or LinkedIn. It wasn't Facebook. It's like Dave, how's it going? I'm like, oh, good. How are you? She's like, great. Oh, here's my number. We should connect. It'd be great to catch up with you. I'm thinking, did you not watch the second episode? Did you not see what happened? We don't get on because you're a not my compatible chick. Um, so I said to her, yeah, that'd be a bit strange, but. You know, it's good to connect. Maybe you should connect with the other guys who you didn't pick. Because I've stayed friends with one of the other guys. He's a lovely guy called Terry McCartney. Uh, he's Irish and he, he lives in obviously in Ireland. And we've stayed Facebook friends. So we don't really hang out, but, but certainly a lot of respect. And so she went really quiet. And I think she must have watched the second episode and realized what really happened. And when you watch it, you'll go, oh. Yeah, I'm going to do a bit of uh, Googling. You, it's on YouTube. Watch both episodes. Watch the first one so you see what I went through and the second one to see how I rescued it. I mean, it was a long time ago. She might have changed by now. I don't but care. <laughs> you're a married man and you've got kids now anyway. But moving I on. I didn't say I wanted to meet her. I'm just <laughs> telling you I had no interest in it. Moving on to a more serious subject. Okay, then. That subject wasn't a fantastic segue into this one, but I'm going to go with it anyway. We can edit it. <laughs> I'm not going to edit it. It's too much like hard work. Okay. So uh, what legacy would you like behind? What would you like people to say about you when you're no longer here? Don't it, care. Is this really important to Don't you? care. I couldn't give a monkey's what anybody says about me. I'd like him to be kind to my daughter. I'd like to think that as she grows up, people will say, oh, your dad's a good, dad was a good lad. Um, let's give you an opportunity then to do what you want. I don't know what she wants to do. She's got an interest in being a chef. She's got an interest in, in sewing. She's at sewing class right now. I wanted to have as many chances as possible just to find the real her. Mm -hmm. And if anything by our lives and yours included to go, you, she'll probably end up with what Stephen Fry calls a portfolio lifestyle where you don't have one job, it's going to change. And I think that now that is the norm. People should plan their kids to have five careers because things would change so quickly. As for people and what they think of me, I don't care what they think of me now. I could care even less about when I'm dead. I'll be dead. Isn't there a difference between a legacy, though, and what people think of you? Well, if they visit I my grave and put flowers on it, or if... I don't care if I'm thrown in the bin. <laughs> put me in a skip. Just leave my cowboy hat on, so at okay. least I've got next, it there. Next question, then. So you, you've achieved so much in your short lifetime. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> So much. Is there anything else? Is there is there anything that you've uh, that's on your radar that you haven't achieved? That yeah, you would like I to? honestly, I want to be perceived as the number one speaker 
trainer in the world. And that is what we've just been talking about, legacy. That is a legacy. It is and it isn't. I want here's the thing. I it's like I don't I'm not interested in winning the marathon. I want to experience what it would be like to win the marathon. Does that make sense? So it's the running bit towards 100%. it that I really enjoy, not the accolades of afterwards you've got it, because I will never experience it and care about it when it's happening anyway. And from having been the number one at certain things, like at one point I was a top DJ in town and blah, blah, blah. All it means is you're now looking for your challenges and you've got to then stay on top of the mountain. And that interests me because of this one particular area that I'm in. I mean... When I see the big hitters, we've just had Grant Cardone and Ty Lopez and Gary Vaynerchuk speaking in town. And now I look at these guys and I look at their craft on stage. I don't look at them and go, ooh, shiny. I go, okay, that could have been better and that would have been a good way of doing it. Oh, that was fantastic. Great. I love the way you did it. And I've got a completely different set of eyes looking at speakers everywhere. And that really excites me because if anything, I'm like a Simon Cowell in speaking. I've been, uh, I've been on stage for 50 years. From the age of two, three years old, I've been involved in school plays. I won a talent competition when I was 13 years, or was it 11? It, I was second in Scotland in some singing talent competition. So all the way through, I've been on and off stages. And the beauty of, of the corporate world and the world I'm in right now is even, even the ability to talk to somebody in an elevator is a massive part of your ability to speak. In the Saturday nights of going out and just chatting people up is a massive part of your ability to communicate and get on with people. So I feel like it's reaching a crescendo where I'm fully matured as somebody who's a critique who knows his stuff. And so I find that really exciting. And I think that more than anything, it's not a case of legacy, it's making the most of what I've got. I mean, I've worked with James Brown, I've worked with all these big names, and I've done loads of things that are really exciting, loads of things that are really rubbish. I think it positions me to be able to help people, whatever their situation is. So somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'm not getting promoted at work, what can I do? I know what they can do, because I've been there, I think, create their brand. Or somebody says, I've just started a new business, and I want to be able to fast track towards getting more clients. Been there, done that. Have you considered making your own TV show? All these different things, which are very social media friendly and very much filling that space of what I do. So I coach people all around the world. I've got a number of clients. Yesterday, in here, I was with a client who'd flown over from the US. I was doing some coaching with her. Then I, I left her to go and coach somebody in Australia. So I've got a lot of people around the world I'm coaching. That interests me. They are my legacy. I want them all to be better than me. I want them all to be much higher and achieve more than I've ever done because that will prove to me that I did the right thing. And whether they come back and say, thanks, Dave Crane, happy days. If they don't say it, it doesn't matter. I've got an internal timer that lets me know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong, and that's all that matters to me. I was interviewing a guy last week, and you kind of remind me a little bit of him, in a way, in, in what you're saying. No, he wasn't a Rastafarian. You'll probably know him. Harry, Harry Singer. Yes. Great he comes from a place of authenticity yeah you know he's been doing the job for many many years yeah, yeah. and you know he started quite a, a rough background and you know he was yeah but he just comes from a place of auth authenticity and you know there's been such an influx recently especially in dubai because i think we've been a little bit behind the rest of the world in terms of 
all these speakers coming and selling the high ticket events on stage and some pe- a lot of people are wising up to that. Is that something that you've ever been involved in? Well, here's, here's like the thing. Like selling from stage. I, I, for about 10 years, um, my, my business colleagues and I used to organize them about 10 years ago. We brought over some of the biggest names to do it when the internet was just new. And so internet marketing was the thing. We brought over about 10 years. We even did a thing called You Learn Twitface when it was all about how to use social media. And when I asked the audience of 500 people, who here is on Facebook? 30% were on Facebook. Nobody else had signed up for it yet. So that's how far I go back with it. When uh, was that? Pre-2007? That's going back, yeah, I mean, that's going back about 10 years. We're not done for like 10 years or so. Um, as for these getting wise to things, here's my thoughts on it. Um, I think that speakers now are the new comedians and comedians were the new rock and roll. In the 90s, stand-up comedians could fill a stadium who would go along and hear jokes in the way that they'd hear people do songs before. Speakers now, because they have a spin on aspects of life, are the new concert. So how does that fit into the, the speaker selling stuff? I have a lot of respect for people who are pitch men who go along and do their stuff. For me, I find it slightly repulsive. I'll tell you why. Not because they don't sell good stuff, not because they've not got great policies and not got really good ways of making people improve, but the whole experience gets a little bit icky, which is why you said people are wising up. I don't want anybody to wise up to what I do because I'm not selling them anything. I'm selling them the ability to be great speakers. No BS involved. Anybody who works with me, I will get them across the finishing line. That's in my DNA, and, I, and that's what, what fuels me to get out of bed at 4 o'clock and work it for them. And at some point, to scale it, my online systems and all the rest of it will be part of that DNA so I can help more people overseas. But I'm not talking about going on stage and, and, and using NLP and hypnosis to drive people to buy my stuff. I think that what will happen, and this is something I'm working on, um, I will have, from my, my, the people that I've trained, which is a couple of hundred people, I would guess, in, D- in Dubai, but over the year, thousands of people have trained. I will have a similar speaking event with people from industry. So I work with like CEOs and regional managers from Google to Nissan to Renault to whatever company. They are all trained by me to be great speakers. So you have an event where they're on stage with nothing to sell. We don't need sponsorship because their companies will be part of the sponsorship, but they will educate and train people in the audience who will pay for a ticket, it's not going to be free, to grow and be better. Now, how will I monetize that? Well, if I do it as an ongoing basis, I know that those people in the audience, some will want to find their voice. And if they don't, then that's fine. I see that as my own version of what you're talking about because a lot of the speaking events, I have been the guy who was cheerleading like Harry and driving people to sales and buy that stuff. And I was really interested in working in that, that particular event as well until I, I realized that as a speaker trainer and an expert on being able to train people to speak, I know Harry does that as well, and I like the guy, I've got full respect for him, I would be compromising my art and my, and my, my reason for getting out of bed and helping people if I used it to make people buy somebody else's stuff. Now, the difference is, with the guys that they had at that event, 
I believe that every single one of them had something of value to offer. And I believe that as long as they're ethical and they do follow up, each of the guys who had something to sell would make your life better if they follow through on what they're promising on stage. But I think that the journey and the experience of arming people with the ability to communicate really effectively, to meet people, to fall in love, to get business done, to do stuff that will just enrich their lives, that's the prize. That's what you're selling. You're selling a better life. And you're selling a better life in a world where politics has just gone bonkers. And right is wrong, left is right, up is down. If you can create a bubble around you with people that you love in it, and the career that you want, and the experiences and the happiness on a daily basis, and somebody will sell you that, which is what I effectively do with communication skills, then that's worth buying. And I don't sell to everybody, but I do help everybody get a little bit further than they were before I met them. Okay, thank you. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. It does. Um, Dave, what do you think about the concept that life begins at the edge of your comfort zone? Do you have any particular story that you can share with us about how you've challenged your fears? Yes. I never had a comfort zone, to be honest with you. Um, or at least, I was. it took me many years, maybe up until my 40s, when I was waiting to get spotted and somebody to give me a helping hand and say, this is a guy we're looking for. So my comfort zone was always push, 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 push until somebody lifts you up and helps you go the rest of the way. And that's never happened in my life. It's never happened. So the comfort zone was a bit of a discomfort zone. And it meant that all the time that up to about the age of 40, I was waiting for fate or for Big G upstairs or whatever it might be to make my life more enhanced and better. When I got to about 40... I went, you know what? Nobody's going to help me, so I might as well just do it myself. And what I learned is just to tell people where to go if they're not buying into it. You know, I've taught my daughter from a very early age, if people don't like what you do and you believe in it and you're not hurting anybody, tell them to kiss it. And I really do stand by that. And it might offend people. Fine, kiss it. Because it's only when you go on your own that you realize that the world around you doesn't look after anybody really well. If you're born into money, okay, you're going to have money. You're born into good looks or sports or whatever. You've got certain advantages. The truth is nobody gets the same advantages. Nobody. If you're from a rich family and you're white and you're middle class or upper class and you're living in the U.S., or in the U.K., you had advantages over little black kids in Africa that they will never, it will never balance up. Now, does it mean that they should give up? No, but they're never going to have the advantages of the opportunities that you on a bad day would have. That's just reality. So anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. But you get one go at this life. I don't believe in coming back as a, as a, as a tuna fish or, or, or reincarnation. You get one go, in my opinion. Once you're gone, you're gone. So until you're dead, you have life. And so you might as well completely make calculations to get yourself to where you need to be. So that's what drives me. That's what I believe people should be doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes loads of sense. I love that. Um, Dave, Tony Robbins, he says people's lives are an expectation of their peer group. Has there ever been a time in your life, and I know what you're going to say because I think we've discussed this, that you felt the people around you were not in alignment with who you wanted to be? All the time. Was there a time when you had to evaluate the people around you? And, and what's your general view? 
Right, I'll answer that by taking it back to the last question to add a bit that I was going to say about comfort zones. I realized that I was hijacking my ability to get to the top table in my, in my chosen careers because um, subconsciously, I didn't think I'd be accepted. Growing up as a black kid in white places, if I can get to a certain point where nobody rejects me, then I'm okay. And I was always just below the surface of being recognized and I'd stop at that point. So the question about the peer group is, I've never had a peer group. When I, do you remember when Soul to Soul was out and everybody, the funky dread look and all that? I was back to life and, and all the rest of it. That was uh, huge in about 1993, 92. And I went to the West Indies on a pilgrimage for where my mother's from to see my family over there, to see if I had roots in Africa and I had roots in the West Indies. And these are my people and I hated them. And they hated me. I was a Brit. I was a weirdo. I wasn't one of them. And I thought I'd be welcomed with open arms and they'd give me like a coconut shell full of <laughs> rum and say, brother, we've been waiting for you. And I realized that I was a Brit and I'm a black Brit and it's never going to fit in. And I just have to find my own way. And coming to a place like Dubai, where the simple answer is nobody cares who you are, what you do. If you make money, good luck. If you don't make money, you won't be here long enough. But just don't ruin it for anybody else. It was perfect for me. I mean, that's where I made my, my opportunities come true. As for peer group, I'm creating my own peer group. I don't see a peer group. Every time I get close to somebody, especially if we're really close friends, I see gaps. Now, I don't judge people by the gaps in, in our relationship, but I do judge them by the gaps professionally. So I, I will happily help people but I don't want them to decide that I'm not good enough because of our levels and what we do. I'd prefer my friends to be friends because I don't judge them and I like their company as opposed to anything else, which makes the peer group really challenging because if somebody wants to go into business with me, are they as good as me? Are they better than me? How do we quantify that relationship? Are we going in the same direction? Or are we traveling partners? These are a load of questions which I've done in the past and never found to be satisfactory. Now I do my own thing. I've got my own tribe on LinkedIn. I've got two and a half thousand decision makers, of which about a thousand plus are CEOs um, who are in my speakers tribe. So my legacy, if it's that, is to grow that and make sure that we've got really high end. Now, high end is not because I don't want anybody below, but it's a simple business model. If I don't have to worry about how I earn money, I have more I can give to other people. If I have to worry about everything that comes in because I can't pay my rent or pay my bills, then I am not growing anybody but me. It's like if you're on a plane in the old days when you'd have the fire escapes and the, 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 the stewardess would say, the fire exits are here, here, and here. If, you, if a, the oxygen mask comes on, attend to yourself before you attend to anybody else. And that's simply because your kid can't get you off a burning plane if you've passed out. If you look after you first, you can carry your kid and resuscitate them when you get off a plane. So for me, it's very simple. I'm on this journey. My family comes first beyond anybody. But there's enough for everybody. There's enough abundance in the world for everyone to be rich. It's just people have set up an idea of scarcity to stop people being rich. But there's enough for everybody. There's resources. We're here. I've got chamomile tea. Look at my pinky's gone up. Brownie. There's water. There's food. There's stuff for everybody. But you've got to be able to appreciate it and act like that. So I'm creating my own ecosystem, my own peer group. Some people will like it. Some people won't like it. I couldn't care less. They can kiss it.
Do you have any go-to hacks? That's someone who is nervous of public speaking. Just one hack, one simple hack that they can do before they get on stage. Yeah, I would say first, there's a couple of different things. I mean, there's a lot of different things because I teach people to do this. So there's going to be a couple. First of all, what's the worst thing that can happen? People don't like you? It's fine. It's like going for a job interview. What's the worst thing that can happen? I get rejected if they don't like me. Well, you didn't have the job before, so you still haven't got the job. So that's rejection, is, is not getting something you didn't have before. If you know your stuff and you know your subject and you're trained to know your audiences, then the only thing you're missing is connection. So the one tip I would give is work out the Wi-Fi code of your audience. Once you know the Wi-Fi code, how you connect to them, how they want to be connected to, you just have to get a transfer of your information across to them. But it is that you have to then be able to ride the relationship and the energy. You've got to ride the energy of taking them up and down to get into the optimum learning experience if you're a speaker or a trainer. If you're a stand-up comedian, it's a different thing. You've got to get into the, the optimum jokey experience. How do you get to know what that Wi-Fi code is? You study it and you study yourself and you know your subject. And you know that you, you can work it out when you get there. It's very rare I will walk onto a stage with no idea who, who's in the audience. And I can change my tack in a, in a snap second. I can go from business people to children to old dears to teenagers to millennials, whatever. I can work it. I can work a combination. And I can work throw in different nationalities. I can even work in don't speak English. Because I've worked with translators where there's 2,000 people in Brazil. Where I was in Rio doing a cryptocurrency event. Are we okay for that? 2,000 people in a cryptocurrency event in Brazil. 13 translators. 300 people spoke English. Everybody else had a headset on. So when you're talking to them, you know that if you crack a joke, they might not get it as a joke at all. The translator might not appreciate it as a joke. Or they might say it a different way. Or you're waiting for the feedback loop to say it went down well, and they're trying to hear it to see what it was you said, and you might get nothing back. So you've got to be able to rise above that to do a more, a more tampered and dumbed-down version just going for the key communications. So if I said, um, yesterday I ate a hot dog, in translation it might be, yesterday I was hot, I ate a dog. Now... It, you don't know what that's going to be come across as. In some countries, that's exactly how they would want it to sound. Um, so I think the key is to know your audience, know yourself, and know how to communicate. Your content is important, but I can stand in front of an audience and keep talking about anything forever. But I also respect the audience, and the most important thing that I would say for anyone who wants to be a speaker is um, ask yourself a question all the time what's in it for them what does that audience want from the experience of being there with you and that's what you give them they don't care who you are nobody cares who i am nobody here cares who i am at all i'm used to that i don't i, I get it but they're interested in what they can get from me and that i respect dave i genuinely believe our mind is very powerful and through programming we can manipulate it to pretty much create whatever you want in life. I'd like to know a little bit more about your journey into hypnotherapy, because I know you've done a little bit of a stage hypnosis, yeah? and A lot of stage hypnosis. A lot of stage hypnosis. I'm only familiar with the other type of hypnosis. And um, yeah, can you just talk about that a little bit more? 
I'll tell you what time we're on because I know you've got another appointment to go yeah. to. So we'll I've got another podcast with more people listening. Okay. I'm joking, so I'm joking. <laughs> <now. laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. <laughs> Sorry, ask me again. It's probably true. We're on 40, 48 minutes now. Great. Of, of quality content. That's what it is. Real <laughs> gems. Changing lives. We should charge for this. Are you charging for this? All right, I'll charge you for this. You'll pay somehow. Um, sorry, what was the question again? Uh, it was about your stage hypnosis. It was about your hypnotherapy. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey? Yeah. Um, and does stage hypnosis differ to the other hypnosis on a th- therapeutic level? Not really. It's the same thing. Same, same way you get people into hypnosis. But what you do is when you get them into hypnosis and they're all a bit off, off, um, off kilter and in a subconscious mind, you can make suggestions that they will adapt to. Same as when you've got therapy. You, know. you could have me like clucking like a chicken now. Is that what you want? <laughs> Are you, you sure? Can do that. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest. Okay. See, the conversation's gone down a bit now already, hasn't it? Right. I got into it. Here's, I'll tell you a story that's really bizarre, and then you'll understand why I end up becoming a stage hypnotist. When I was a kid growing up in Scotland, my best friend was a guy called Stuart Knox. You don't need to know him. He's not in prison. He's just a guy, a kid. If it was a guy, it might be creepy because I was like five years old and he'd be a guy. He was five years old as well. So Stuart and I wanted to be superheroes. I wanted to be Black Panther, obviously. He wanted to be Captain America. And I remember going to my dad and saying, Dad, you work at ICI. It's a big factory. Can you make us some, some um, jetpacks so we can go to America and fight crime? worked at ICI. No. Yeah, well, everyone did, didn't they? They, they had no choice, really. It was either that or, or... Yeah, that's it. It was all there. Goodness me. <sighs> so anyway, go back to the story. Um, so we both wanted to be superheroes, and my dad let us down gently by saying, I don't actually make jetpacks, Dave. I work in a plastics factory, and um, I can't help you. It could have... I mean, it was beautiful, but um, as a dad, I realized it was beautiful. As a kid, I was gutted. You know, your dad is Santa Claus. How can he not be making it? I must have really upset him at some point for not making me a superhero. So anyway, years later, I left Scotland, and I connected with Stuart again uh, in our late 40s on Facebook. And he's also a stage hypnotist and motivational speaker. So something in our childhood made us want to have special powers. And that developed independently because we were different kids, completely different kids, as the end result that we have now. Now, as a therapist yourself, when you know that people's character is made up to the age of seven, you can see that the direct correlation between me and him and how it ended up. For me, why I became a stage hypnotist, for a couple of reasons. I lost my interest in radio. I wanted to then become a cabaret so I could turn up, do an hour's worth of, of show rather than DJing and be the last person to leave, pick up a check and leave. And I wasn't a good enough singer. I was in my own head when I was drunk, but, but that everyone does that. Um, I didn't have an interest in magic because I had no patience for practice. But if, if hypnosis was real, yeah, I could have a go at that. I'm okay in a mic. I'm not scared to talk to people. That sounds interesting. So... I wanted to attempt that. And also Paul McKenna, who's a very famous British hypnotist and NLP master practitioner and therapist, um, was a Radio 1 DJ when he first started. He was a radio DJ who left it to become a stage hypnotist. And I could see that if I modeled myself on him, I actually ended up working with him. I did a gig with him as well in in Dubai in the crazy old days. Um, Then I should take him as a template.
So um, I wanted to become a stage hypnotist. I couldn't do it in Dubai because nobody did it. Nobody had heard of it. Um, but the lady who trained me, Beryl Coma, she um, said that when she goes to the US, she's got a number of people who go to these um, hypnosis conventions, and some of them train stage hypnosis. So I looked at it. I looked at one of them in Vegas um, to be a stage hypnotist, and it was happening a month from when I visualized that I wanted to become a stage hypnotist. The price point was exactly the money I had in my bank account. And I was free during that time to go. It was like all the things that I should say, get on a plane, go do it. So I went to Vegas, trained to be a stage hypnotist, came back to Dubai, said, here I am, I'm a stage hypnotist, let's do some shows. And everyone said, I don't know what one of them is, and I don't know who you are, and I'm not interested. So I had to really dig deep to get these shows going. And I did a lot. I mean, I traveled the world, I did... Monte Carlo, every country, US, everywhere, um, and sell out dates in Dubai and everything. Um, but I didn't do it prolifically enough for me to want to stay with it. Um, but as, a, as an entertainer, it's taught me a lot about the ability to work an audience and also to understand the power of words. Every single thing I do as a therapist, every single do I think when I'm working with people, when they speak, I pick up what they say, what they don't say, and the message behind what it is that they're saying. And they might not know it. So it's really made me effective at being able to understand how to make people better communicators. Thank you. Dave, I have got a couple more questions, but I do value your time. And I know you've uh, got far to away. They can wait. They can wait. Somewhere. They can wait. You want me to carry on? They couldn't care less. Actually, that's the worst thing you could say to somebody because I remember we did a gig. It was actually Eula and Twitface. And we had a lady that came on stage. Eula and Twit, you know, the Eula and Twitface yeah, yeah. gig. And we had a lady that came on stage. And she was from, from, from the community here. And she went on stage to do a 20-minute speech. She ended up not leaving the stage. And we had people flown over from the US to sell their products who were all given an hour and a half. And she started eating into their time. And we tried to get her off stage and she wouldn't go. And she turns to the audience and says, you're loving this, aren't you? Do you want me to stay longer? And I said, these guys are trying to get me off, but you want me to stay, don't you? <laughs> so we end up having to frog march her off stage after about 40 minutes. We went on, how oh, great, thank you very much. Because she was going to do a full hour. Yeah. So we got her off stage. And what she did was she went to her friends in the national newspaper. And they started writing nasty, nasty stuff. And I was caught with, I got onto my lawyers and I wanted to go cease and desist. And this is not against the national newspaper. There's one guy in particular who's an online editor who's a friend of hers who decided that he'd go full guns on discrediting me. And out here, you can't, it's, it's out here, you can't really take somebody to court unless you're ready to, to lose all your money and possibly lose. You know, so I ended up making a choice. My lawyer said to me, you should probably just leave it and see if it just quietens down rather than doing anything about it. Because if you flag it up to a, a British journalist that you've got a fight about freedom of speech, they might just then get their friends to have a go at you as well. And this all came from her not leaving stage. That's crazy. Mad, isn't it? I know, absolutely. But you want me on longer, don't you? Yeah, you do, kids. <laughs> okay, last question then. I've got a couple more, but last question. Um, in today's moving times, how important is it to keep educating yourself and is this something that, you know, you look, you've got a lot of knowledge doing what you do, but is it something that you, do you see yourself as constantly learning? All the time. Every day I'm learning. My favorite subject at the moment is Donald Trump. And I don't get near politics or, or religion or any of the things to talk about, but I find him utterly fascinating 
I'm not a fan, but I'm a studier of how you become the most powerful person in the world from a microphone. Fascinating. And use of, use of um, social media and also use of bullying tactics. Now, the thing is, his, his supporters would tell us, say, he doesn't bully, he's, he's just a very strong-minded person. But strong-minded is a different version of bullying, depending on how you see it. And I find it fascinating because this, in a world where everything is going through a fourth industrial revolution, and up is down, down is up, and all the rest of the stuff that goes with it, if you have the ability to really make a difference by saying stuff, then you can become the king of your industry. And that's what I teach to my clients about how they can become more influential. So I'm fascinated by technology, not from a nerdy point of view, but I want to know where things are going. I want to be able to go where things are going to be, not too fast, because if it's not there yet, I've got no clients to go with me. But I want to be on the move all the time, so I'm always able to be relevant. So when I hosted a couple of days ago, the Global CIO, Chief Information Officer Summit. It had 200 of the most senior people in the world in technology. I was on stage interviewing the Padman guy I talked about, um, um, Steve Jobs' mentor. I interviewed him on stage, and a guy called John Zerihone, who is launching a thing called Yamba, which has got a $1.6 billion launch. It's a new platform that's gonna change the way people do social media. and. I could hold my own because of my BBC journalism knowledge, which is just to talk about stuff, but also because I know that they are in a very interesting space. And it's not about going off in a geeky direction. It's about the bit where things connect like that. And one of the things I find really fascinating is a thing called a centaur. Now, a centaur is where being a human is enhanced by being partnered with artificial intelligence. So take chess computers. At some point, a chess computer was better at doing chess than a human. And everyone, oh my God, they're gonna take over. But when you pair a human with a chess computer versus the best chess computer, the human will win. Now, the centaur concept is like the idea of having a, a human body with a horse behind it. But if you've watched, like, for instance, in Marvel, Iron Man, who's got his, when he's got his, his, um, his mask on, he's talking to his artificial intelligence, and it's giving him tips and ideas so it can make informed decisions. That's fascinating to me because it means that as humans, we'll be getting better at the world we're in. It's not the robots are going to ruin it for us. The robots are going to partner with us and make us more enhanced. But the challenge that I find is the geeks who create this technology do it because they want to create technology that enhances the world. But when you look at the actual technology, it can be used. A knife is great for stabbing people, apparently, or for cutting your dinner up. It depends how you go to use it. So our ability to have big data means we can really help people, or it means you can do what Cambridge Analytica did and manipulate the elections in 20 countries around the world and upset the apple cart so the world will never be the same again. Is that good? Is that bad? Personally, I think it's bad, because I know that the people that are taking over don't have people's best interests at heart. So I like to know one day what's going to blow us all up. That's my interest in, in watching the news, but I only watch the news for one person. 
The rest of the world, I don't care about. I really, I don't, it's not true to say I don't care. I can only affect the things that are in my radar. So I don't want the world to be full of, there's an earthquake, tsunami, plane crash, because then I feel terrible. I want the bubble around me to be one that I've created. It's Dave flavored. And I want anybody who, who comes and joins me in my tribe to have my philosophy and get a great life. Even if we only spend a short amount of time and they go off and do their thing, if I've helped them get their thing, then that's what makes me tick and makes me happy. Thank you so much. And on that note, Dave, I would like you I'd like to thank you for being a fantastic guest. I've loved thank meeting you. You, you too. Finding out a little bit more about you. It's been a pleasure. Thank it really you so has much. Been. And and before you switch it off, I think I know something that you wanted me to collect for you, and let's work on that. You know what I'm talking about. Ah! <laughs> Bye. <laughs>